Welcome to Living Adventurously. Today's episode is sponsored by the creative design agency Offgrid. Sally and Kim designed my recent book, The Doorstep Mile, as well as the notebook for Living Adventurously that contains the deck of card questions I often ask in my podcasts. They've been great to work with and extremely patient with my chaotic slapdash perfectionism. Offgrid work with an environmental and ethical focus weaving time outdoors into their working process. They focus on branding, digital design, illustration, and of course, book design. Plus, they have their own sustainable print shop. Off-grid work with fellow outdoor enthusiasts, businesses that want to make a change, people with passion, adventurers, charities, startups, anyone with a good idea and a creative challenge. You can find them at somewhereoffgrid.com or follow at Somewhere Off Grid on Instagram. In today's episode, I had a really nice chat with Daisy Narayan, who's the Director of Urbanism at Sustrans and working on the Central Edinburgh Transformation Project. We chatted about placemaking, urban cycling, city design, cooking the perfect dal, and favourite Bollywood tunes. Hi, Daisy. Um, my first question for you today is, what is placemaking? Hi. Um, placemaking, it's such an interesting word, isn't it? Because I think mm. over the past few years, it's been used in so many different ways. Whether, you, you know, you put planters in a square, you call that placemaking. Or, you know, um, but for me, I mean, placemaking is, is about making a place better. It's about improving the quality of a place. Uh, making it better for people uh, to to be there, to live there, to to work there, to play, to learn, and that that is the process of making a place better. Um, I, in my role in Sustrans, I'm the director of urbanism. A lot of people ask me what urbanism means and how that is related to placemaking. And urbanism is to me about you know how it's not just about the physical, tangible uh, urban spaces that you live in or places, but it's about people and about life and urban life. Um, it's about, uh, you know, arts and culture and the memories that a place brings to you. So for me, placemaking and urbanism both is a combination of um, the tangible and the intangible. Um, mm. And yeah, that's what placemaking means to me. Okay. And I imagine this, the whole world of city design um I'm, well, I'm guessing perhaps it's something that when it's done well, the idea is you don't really notice it. I mean, I certainly don't walk around the city and think much about its design. I'm sure you're quite different yeah. to it. So, so what's the, what what are the aims that you the big aims that you're thinking of when you sit down to think? Right, time for some city design work. What's <laughs> what what's the aims? That's yeah. that's such a big question, isn't it? Um, okay. <laughs> but you know, you are so right. You know. It has to be intuitive. I think good design always has to be intuitive. You need, you know, you shouldn't have to be given um, lots of maps and lots of videos on how to use a space and how to use a bike lane, for instance. Um, mm. You should be able to go from A to B if you're talking about, you know, about transport. Uh, and it has the city has to lead you naturally. You know, it has to organically. You need to be able to enjoy where you are. 
Um, so for me, there's something about, you know, um, your switch being off. So uh, whether it's 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 um, traffic or whether it's crime, you know, you ha- everybody has an inbuilt security switch. And I think good design enables you to switch off that security switch and say, um, you know, I'm here, I'm enjoying this place. Um, you know, I, I, I was on secondment to the city of Edinburgh Council a couple of years ago, and I led this program called Open Streets, um, part of the city centre transformation project. And that was about closing 13 streets in Old Town in Edinburgh to traffic. And someone said to me, isn't it interesting? Because when you switch off that switch, that security switch, you, you start to see your relationship with your buildings and your built environment completely changes. And, you know, you see the buildings in a different light and you get to understand what that place was meant for. And mm. um, that's what I really like about, you know, um, about what good city design should do. It should make you feel like you belong there. Um, and one last thing, I suppose, um, Anne Hidalgo, who's the mayor of Paris, you know, recently reelected mayor. Um, I love what she said once, you know, a, a, a street should, you know, you should be able to, a parent should be able to leave their child's hand and feel safe enough that they can cross the road. And I think, you know, if you feel safe, if you feel secure, if you feel um, happy and you know where you are, uh, that to me is good. You know, you've done well in planning that city. Mm, yeah, thank you. So one one example of something that I'd never heard of or considered before uh, until I started uh, Googling um you and the world of placemaking, something that I really like the idea of, but I've never heard of is the 20 minute neighborhood. Can mm-hmm. you tell me a bit about that? Please? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the 20 minute neighborhood concept in itself, the principle isn't, isn't something new, uh, but you know, recently it's getting, it's getting a lot more attention and traction. And what the 20 minute neighborhood does is it, it what it, what it says is that Whatever you need, your amenities that you need, your shops, your healthcare uh, provider, your um, you know everything that you need to live should be within a fifteen-minute walk uh, or a twenty-minute walk of where you are. So uh, that then allows you not to you know to be able to travel short distances by foot or by bike by public transport, um, and it allows you to create hubs where you can live and work, and you know your communities then become stronger and. And then when you plan your longer trips, you know, the trips that you have to do, then you can focus on public transport and, you know, for even longer trips, the private car. So it's it's a way for um, for urban designers and planners and transport planners to come together and say, what kind of place do we want this? You know, how do we design this place? And the 20 minute neighborhood gives you a framework to bring together transport and planning and you know economic development all under one roof to say this is what a neighborhood should look like and it's mm. uh, there's an example of again coming back to paris with Anne hidalgo's manifesto the mayor's manifesto is based on the 15 minute city and it's essentially um it's essentially what you know it's a 20 minute neighborhood concept but as a 15 minute city concept melbourne's done a really good um you know pioneering work around the 20 minute neighborhood as well and in Sustrans, we are looking at uh, twenty-minute neighbourhoods very closely as one of our priorities in you know, the cities and towns work that we do. Yeah, and you, and you grew up in India, which I imagine is very much perhaps not well. 
accidental 20-minute neighbourhoods or not accidental, evolved 20-minute yeah. neighbourhoods, I suppose. Um, what, what, does, um, what does life in India teach you about how in the UK we can have better sustainable travel and living? I mean, the, from the madness of India cities, what, <laughs> what, 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 what has that taught you? Oh, such a good question. So, yeah, I grew up in India. Um, I lived in Southeast Asia, in Indonesia, till I was six. And then, you know, we moved back to India. So I was in um, grade three, I think, when I came back uh, back home. Um, to, to which city? Uh, to Bombay. I grew up in Bombay. But I come from okay. Kerala, which is the south of India. Um, mm. So my, my summer holidays were spent in my ancestral home back in Kerala, which, you know, is this big um, joint family that comes together every summer. And it's it's one of those, um, even for somebody like me, a city girl from Bombay was, you know, amazing and different. You know, it was just something you look forward to. Um, but there's so much that the UK um, can learn, I think. Um, there's lots that we do very, very, very wrong. We get very wrong back home in India, the traffic and the congestion and the pollution, especially in the cities. Um, you know, the focus on development at the cost of environment, I think at the moment is a big topic back home. But there's so much that is um, is good and that I miss. Um, so, for example, growing up, you know, uh, we would get newspapers and every month, at the end of the month, uh, this guy would come and we would stack up all our newspapers and pass it on to him. And then that would then go back to shops and that would then get recycled and would be part of this chain um, the Dabawalas, I don't know if you've heard of those, you know, the... No, what's the name? It's, it's, it's a system of providing home-cooked food to uh, to people in offices. And oh, yes. <laughs> so yeah. it's really interesting. And the reason I bring up these two examples, because, you know, there's a lot of discussion at the moment around circular economy. And I think that's something that in India, you know, I've grown up, being part of that ecosystem where circular economy is just built into what we do. Um, and I think there's something about that kind of work that we can probably learn from over here. You know, it's not disposable. We should be able to recycle and, and reuse and find different uses for uh, for things. Um, in terms of transport, you know, it's it's an interesting one because growing up in Bombay, it's not pleasant to walk. Is it? I, don't, I mean, I'm sure you've been to Bombay. Um, so you you hop into a you know a rickshaw or you know you take your train, very crowded trains. Um, but back in Kerala, where you know I I used to go for my summer holidays and where my family, my extended family, used to live, uh, it's the pace of life is so different and it's slow and you walk places, you walk between you know, through the paddy fields and you you know you cross the river and it's a different completely different pace of life and I think there's something in that concept of the pace of life that maybe we can we can bring back here and learn from that I don't know if that answered your question sorry I got slightly nostalgic there <laughs> it was very it was very interesting I mean, yeah I, I can't remember where I saw some sort of video I think about that that system of getting everyone's lunch to the offices and yes. it's astonishing logistics, isn't it? It's amazing. It is. I, I think they teach teach that in a course in Harvard, if I'm not mistaken. Mm, um, I've seen it. And also, if I remember right, there was another similar thing of getting all the laundry done. Yes, absolutely. Um, 
yeah amazing yes um <laughs> gosh oh i read a great book about uh, india's vs naipaul is called is it a million mornings now or something yes. yeah mm-hmm. naipaul. Something, mm-hmm. something like that mm-hmm. and what i loved about that was just the thought of a billion people in india going about mm-hmm. their daily life in this absolute well, from an outsider's point of view, total and utter crazy <laughs> chaos. <laughs> and yet somehow it works with this beautiful culture that's been going for forever. And yeah. it's just such, I think it's the most bonkers country I've ever been to. <laughs> my husband, he, my husband's British. He's um, So I still remember, you know, we went to India for the first time. Uh, well, he came with me to India for the, it was his first, first visit for my brother's wedding. And, you know, yeah. I'm sure you've seen weddings in India are crazy enough. But then to have your first experience of India and add on to that the bonus of an Indian wedding. um, Yeah, I think bonkers is the word that he used as well. (laughs) I Um, think the traffic really gets, you know, it's it's it is quite terrifying. And even I when I go back now is, you know, it's quite nerve wracking. Uh, But the smells and, you know, it's so it's so intense and it's the i think for me the it's so contradictory you know you've got so much wealth and there's so much poverty and it's just sits next to each other and it's in your face and mm. my husband says to me about india that uh you know the fact that people always people look happy you know despite whatever conditions there are there is that feeling of there is that energy and that joy and that happiness even in the places you wouldn't expect. And, you know, coming back to your question, I suppose, about what <laughs> you could learn over here, maybe there's something about joy and light and, you know, uh, and, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Don't you find Edinburgh incredibly boring after Bombay? <laughs> or, would you find it, or would you find it blissfully peaceful? <laughs> you know, I come back and it's so quiet. So quiet, and the silence is deafening for the first couple of days. <laughs> um, but then, uh, how incredibly lucky and privileged am I to have these two, you know, places as my home? Mm, yeah, yeah, wonderful. So you um you work for Sustrans, so you okay. clearly appre- appreciate cycling. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's what sort of cyclist are you? What what category do you put yourself in in terms of cycling? I. Oh, Good question. I don't consider myself a cyclist at all. Um, I I just hop on the bike when I want to get somewhere. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, well, I suppose if there is a category, it would be a utility cyclist because I, mm. I don't race. I'm, I'm genuinely quite competitive, but when it comes to cycling, strangely enough, I'm not competitive at all. Um, I don't, I don't race. Um, I follow some, you know, I've got friends who are, uh, you know, amazing um mountain bikers and things like that but i that's not me i love cycling because it gets me places i know you know if i've got to go to a meeting i know how long it's going to take um so it just it's just convenient it's easy for me um and ever since i got i got myself an e-bike last year which Mm. has transformed my experience of cycling as well it's just it's so much fun and it's delightful because now, I feel safe. It's a big, it's a Dutch Gazelle bike. So um, it just gives you that extra few seconds on injunctions and you feel safe. And 
you know, you're part of a community um, of people who who all love cycling, and I enjoy that that aspect of it as well. So yeah, I suppose I'm a I'm a utility cyclist. Okay, so how how does the your experience of riding your bike differ in the places you've lived? So let's say in India mm-hmm. versus America versus the UK. What's life like as a utility cyclist in those mm-hmm. places? Yeah, I mean, so I think uh, the only place I've actually been a utility cyclist has been here in the UK, in, in Edinburgh, London, uh, where I used to live in London. Um, but in India, you know, you cycle as a child. You don't even, you don't think twice. You know, you uh, every Sunday you there was a little um, cycle hire place close to where we lived. And there were a bunch of us kids, we'd go there and... You know, it was one rupee and you'd get, I think, one hour or something like that, 20 pesos. It was really, really one of those, uh, I'm showing my age now. But, um, yeah, so that's, that's the kind of cycling you do. And then as you grow up, you become too cool for cycling, you know, and you, you just don't do it anymore. Um, but what about that? You sent me that lovely video of the Bollywood singers cycling. <laughs> <laughs> that was fantastic. <laughs> I know, I know. Isn't that lovely? Oh, there's so many cheesy Bollywood songs with cycling. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they, they, sort of, they, they were doing recreational cycling around the park, weren't they? It was exactly. that sort of thing. Yes, exactly. But I imagine it's it's a bold person who would cycle to work regularly in exactly. Bombay. You wouldn't have perhaps chosen mm-hmm. that. So what? how about then life in America as a cyclist? Yeah, so in America, I lived in a small town in, um, in Huntsville, Alabama, and it was a gated community, really beautiful. And I had a bike and... I used to take my bike out to the lake and just cycle around the lake. So, but to go anywhere, to go to the shops or to go, um, you know, I wasn't working then, but I would hop in the car because that was, that's what you did. But then to go out to, you know, for your rest and recreation, you would hop on your bike and, and circle around the lake. So there was a very different kind of cycling in Singapore where I lived, you know, I would hire a bike every now and again, but again, in a city, um, it was not, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a place to go A to B, which is why I think when I came here to the UK, um, it was quite eye-opening, you know, in Edinburgh especially. I came as a student in 2004 and I got myself a, a you know, a, a cheap bike. And suddenly, you know, the hills were tough, but you get used to those. <laughs> uh, and you just experience the city in a completely different way, which was quite eye-opening to me after having lived in America for a few years. And then in London, where I lived, I used to take the tube to get to work from Battersea to Farrington, which was two changes of tube and a bus. And that took me an hour and a half. But then on a bike, that took me 45 minutes. So again, that kind of shift in in my own thinking of, you know, it's just easier uh, is what's kept me, you know, is is why I joined Sustrans as, you know, as one of my reasons. Um, because you just realize how much better life is um, you know, mm. if you're able to do that. I guess that's where we want to get, where people are saying, well, it's just easier to go by bike. Yes, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Because I think, you know, people understand the, the environmental case and the social case for cycling. You know, there's so much evidence and data and all of that. But as a species, you know, I think we are all quite, um, you know, we will do what what is easy. And so if we make it easier to, to walk and cycle, um, and make it slightly more difficult to, you know, to hop in a car, then that's what we, you know, we would choose because it's just the easier, easiest thing to do, most convenient thing to do. Um, yeah. 
So is the UK doing quite well then in the uh, world of getting urban places cycling? <laughs> it's um, I've jo- I joined Sustrans in 2012, and definitely from then to now, there has been a huge shift in. Is that is that since you joined Daisy? <laughs> because of me, <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, it's, it's just, you know, it's seeing the narrative shift. I think people are more mm. aware about, you know, uh, I think climate change has helped, the climate crisis has helped focus people's minds on what, you know, the changes that need to happen. Um, and as, as people travel more and, you know, you go and see what's, how are the cities are designed and built, and you come back and you see more and more transport planners and transport uh, transport folk understanding the benefits of, you know, prioritizing walking and cycling. I think it, it's just that the narrative shift has happened quite rapidly over the past few years. And that's been a joy to watch. It's nowhere as quick as it should be. And we really, really need to need to be more ambitious, more radical now, you know, if we are to come anywhere close to... Um, to not just meeting our climate targets, but to making our cities places where you can breathe and be healthy and, um, you know, more livable. So mm-hmm. um, so things are changing, definitely. And, you know, certain places are, are way ahead of others. But I don't think they're changing. Such, such as where? Who, who's ahead? <laughs> You're going to get me to trouble now with my <laughs> different offices across the strands. Well, I think... London's doing some incredible work, you know, with um, with the Will Norman, who's the walking and cycling champion. He's doing some really interesting work around, you know, changing the public realm. So it's not just about cycling, but changing how how the public realm becomes more intuitive. Manchester, you see what's happening, you know, with Chris Boardman as their cycling commissioner, walking cycling commissioner, and some of the really interesting work around the B network, as they call it. You know, segregated network uh, across the Greater Manchester region, not just um, not just Manchester City, but of course I live in Scotland. So you know, for me, Scotland is is special. I love that there is so much investment in cycling across the country, and Edinburgh and Glasgow, two cities, you know, really ambitious, really um, in in their thinking. And in the next you know few years, we're going to see some big changes happening in Scotland. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I'm a relentless optimist. So <laughs> that's a good that's a good thing to be now more than ever. So you were, you were originally an architect. You moved into mm-hmm. urban city design. Um, mm-hmm. I I read on I, somewhere I don't know where now that um, you said cities that are designed for women are designed mm-hmm. for everyone. Um, which again is something that I'd never considered. How how does designing a city have any relevance to uh, gender? <laughs> yes, it's an interesting um, question, isn't it? Because I think there is a whole question around inclusive design and mm-hmm. who is who is a city for? That has been a, a, you know, again a point of debate and discussion uh, recently. Uh, there's a wonderful book called. Um, the, the Invisible Woman, if you haven't read that, and if you haven't read, um, there's, there's lots of work that's happened in Vienna and other cities which, you know, showcase the role of uh, of women in, in yeah. city design. So could, you, me, could, you, could you tell us about the Vienna? I found that really interesting, what I read there. 
Yeah, so uh, it was a few years ago, I, I can't remember the exact, I think it was late 90s where, you know, there was a decision made that, you know, they they had an exhibition that showcased the life of different kinds of, you know, a day in the life of a woman, right from a child um, to a, a woman in a wheelchair, a woman who's working. It was a photography exhibition that, you know, captured 24 hours in, in, in a woman's life. And that that led to a debate around how how different a woman's life, you know, how different life is on average for a woman than it is for a man and how, you know, things like trip chaining, you know, is a term that means, you know, women tradition, you know, on average will not go from A to B, you know, they go from A to B to C to D. So you go from, you know, you drop your kids off at the nursery and then you go to the shop and then you go to your work and then you go back to the shop and on the way home. So the way, so and and again, you know, there's evidence that says it's different from a man's journey, which tends to be A to B or you know A to B to C. So um, it's interesting how that that whole the way that you look, you know, when you change the lens uh, of when you look at something, uh, you realize how by being more inclusive, by making sure that you know people who use the city, who use your space, have to be part of that decision-making, have to be part of that, you know, the the process, whether it's design or policy or implementation, you have to have, you have to be at the table. And, you know, I, gender was one, that, that was a blog I think I wrote for the International Women's Day, but it, it holds true across the board. You know, I go to meetings, transport meetings, and, you know, sometimes I'm the only woman there. I mean, most, many times I'm the only woman and I'm the only woman of color many, many times. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we need to have voices that represent people who use our spaces so that we are able to make spaces that then work for everybody. And it's it's an easy, it's easy to say, um, it's more difficult in practice. But I think the more that, you know, the more awareness there is and the, the more that people like me who are privileged enough to to do what I do and to work in, in, in you know, in the area that I do, uh, the more we can talk about this openly, the better it is. And, you know, I have immense role models of women doing amazing things in transport here in Scotland. You know, Lee Craigie, our Active Nation Commissioner, she's a woman, first woman Active Nation Commissioner, um, you know, there's uh, local councillors, um, women councillors who are really going beyond uh, anything we've seen before to be radical and ambitious. And we need more of that. And we need, you know, women at all levels to come in and be part of that conversation and make change happen. Mm. So g- getting me to change my lens then, how how do we go about getting more women of colour onto bicycles? <laughs> Um, I think we need to listen more. We need to be, you know, we need to understand what, you know, what the barriers are. Why is it that we don't see more women of color on bikes? You know, what what is what are the cultural barriers there? And there's some really amazing community work happening, you know, across um, across Scotland. You know, in Edinburgh, we've got organisations that that are working in the grassroots to get more people of, you know, black ethnic minority communities, people who look like me. Um, on their bikes um, and it's really interesting some of the conversations around barriers and I think so the first thing I suppose changing your lens is to not take things for granted and not say that oh you know we've built this two and a half meter wide bicycle path and you know so why why isn't someone using it 
And I think the key key is to listen and understand why, and then shape your responses to that why based on what you've heard. Hmm. So you you asked a couple of good um, rhetorical questions in your answer there. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna push one back to you in a, as a non rhetorical question. Uh-huh. You said uh, rhetorically, you said, "Why aren't we seeing mm-hmm. more women of color?" On bicycles what are the barriers so uh, let me now ask you those questions yeah i mean again you know so uh, for me safety is is a big issue you know so if if i don't feel safe and that might be because of you know where i come from it's not you know a cycle path that's not lit for example well lit i come with that inhibition and maybe it's not it's not just for women of color but that's an example i'm giving you uh I need a place to feel safe because where I come from in India, cities are not as safe as they are over here. So there are those deep-rooted cultural kind of, um, you know, inhibitions that that we that we all bring to our to our lives. Uh, there's um, there's a wonderful group uh, that's working in Edinburgh called in uh, what are they called? They call Score Scotland, and Score Scotland is the what's uh, it's a racial equality group. And they have a project which is about getting um, black ethnic minority folk on bikes, um, but working with children. It started off working with children, and very soon it became uh, it expanded into families. And some of the ladies, you know, they come from Uganda or you know African communities, and they said they had never even contemplated uh, getting on a bike because they wouldn't do that in in their cities or where they come from. So you know, it's it's that eye-opening experience for them to say actually this feels safe um, but if if that if that group weren't working in that community you would never know uh, so yeah it's um just like anything there is no one answer is there slightly mm, so, yeah, you know, sure. version of uh, why i don't cycle but yeah. you know I'll, I'll give you a happy story though um, okay last january i was cycling to work and it was a cold cold wet day in scotland and Never. Um, <laughs> the AS, you know, the, at, the, at the junction, I looked around on my bike and there were five of us on a bike, all five of us women and of different ages, um, one wearing a helmet, one lady wearing a hijab. And I had that warm, fuzzy feeling of saying, yes, we are getting something right. You know, this is a city where, you know, this is happening on a January morning. Um, Brilliant. Yeah. That gave me the oh. warm, fuzzy yeah that's oh that's great and that's a good um that's proof of your work bearing slow gentle fruits isn't it i think so um so um now the whole world's gone totally nuts <laughs> as we know um and we're, and we're all we've thrown all the cards up into the air and we have no idea how they're going to land um but uh there are i i see it as there's great opportunities for change now but you you've written that uh, without action now there's a real risk that the car will become the default mode of socially distanced transport you know everyone scared of going on public transport will we end up just even more car focused than ever mm-hmm. so how can you in a, how can how can you how can we make that not be the case in urban areas in particular yeah yeah, I mean, we're seeing a lot of work happening on that exact thing at the moment, which is which is good to see. And you know, I think lockdown was a 
it was an opportunity for everyone i think to reflect on what kind of what kind you know it's a, it's a, it's a, it was an opportunity to reflect on what you value and it was interesting to see how communities came together to really you know to really provide resilience and strength to each other um lots of my neighbors talked about bird song you can hear bird song isn't it lovely and you know you discovering that you can just walk to that shop and you know the 5 mile radius that you were given all of that it just it just brought with it that opportunity of a different kind of world and i think that as lockdown is easing you know we have to make sure that people don't forget that people don't forget that they were able to go out and cycle with their families on the streets without being scared of traffic when china when wuhan came out of lockdown um, i think it was 73 days in lockdown when they came out you you saw and justifiably so people were scared to you know to jump on public transport so they went from 30% car you know car modal shift to 65% you know it's just a massive shift in people jumping in their cars and because of that because of that we said you know in scotland uh, scottish government and the work that we do with them um and across the uk as well that we need to make sure that action is taken now while we're still in lockdown this is in april may to put into place options so when people come out of lockdown there is a bicycle path that they can you know they can continue to use their cycle um the you know pavements have been widened so you can socially distance and be and you know and go for your walk you don't have to jump in your car and you can see now as lockdown is lifting you're starting to see more and more infrastructure coming into place and you've seen that debate again i'm not sure if things are moving fast enough um you know but if we can get people to not just you know default jump in their car uh, but retain some of that walking and cycling that you know we have to lock in some of that benefit is what we need to do because again it it's not you know we, we talk about this going back to a you know new normal because the old normal was a climate crisis we can't go back to that and mm. steps that we take now will help us not just with the next 18 months you know as we recover from covid but as we look to you know addressing the climate crisis which is a far bigger crisis than anything we've ever seen now yeah yeah so i mean it's really highlighted all the crossovers between uh, the quality of our places public health economy transport air quality um social justice and equality all these things have been so highlighted in the last few months so how would you how would you like to see us reinventing the high street after all of this hmm uh, it's a good day to ask a question isn't it today when you know the there's been discussion in parliament about you know how we how we recover from this economically um i would like to see a high street where people feel that they a as we come out of lockdown they feel that they are safe and they can they can enjoy your their high street without worrying about social distancing because this is about you know at the moment short term this is about the recovery from from covid uh, but the high street has to be a place where people want to linger and want to want to be rather than want to pass through and i think the more you make it car friendly the more you see people passing through rather than staying um so you know how we reinvent our shops what happens on to our streets outside of our shops you know how pedestrianization 
um, can work in our high streets, you know, where we start to look at last mile delivery. So your vans are not clogging up the streets. You can use bicycles for for things like that. Um, you know, where you green your, you know, you, you use greening and uh, trees where you can, uh, benches, parklets, all of that. Your high street has to be a place where, you know, we, you want to be with your family, with your kids. You want to shop, you want to eat, you want to spend time and not a place where you just want to, you know, nip through. So we'll get there. I'm sure we will. Good. I hope so. You, I feel safe in your hands. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. So um, on Twitter... Um, your your bio on Twitter says that you love books, food, music, and politics. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to pass on the politics because it's oh, thank you. because because it's nearly five o'clock, and <laughs> I, uh, I'm feeling the need for a, a beer. <laughs> so, but I would love to ask to pick your brain for a recommendation of a good book or two, but uh, something relevant to our chat that um, that I might not have read. You mentioned. Um, Invisible Women, I've got that on my list. What are a couple of other books that you recommend? Um, well, see, so through lockdowns, I'm an, I love to read and I love to, you know, it, it's an escape. But through lockdown, I found it really, really difficult. I found, um, I found myself not being able to focus on, on reading. So I went on Twitter and I said, right, folks, tell me what, you know, what's a good book to read. Similar to your question to me, I suppose. And the book community on Twitter is incredible. And I have a spread, I have a spreadsheet because I like my spreadsheets of books that um, you know that can get me through this this lockdown. So one of the books, I don't know if it's it's relevant to to our conversation today, um, but there's this book that I've read called uh, Leonard and Hungry Paul. I don't know if you've read that, and it's it's no. a gentle. Um, really life-affirming book about people who who want to make change, you know, who change things, but not in a big flashy way, but in their own quiet way. And I think there's something very inspiring about the, um, how can I put it, the extraordinary, ordinary, I suppose, you know, where it's it's not um, it's not uh, you know the big massive changes that you see, but quiet and and uh, meaningful so i definitely mm. recommend that i think it's a beautiful book um and that sounds ideal yeah. so did you have another one um and then there's um well i like i like to read my slightly dystopian fiction so <laughs> <laughs> margaret atwood and her handmaid's tale is always one that i go back to or harper lee um not dystopian. did you enjoy the new the new i've forgotten the name of it the new margaret yeah, atwood. Did I you did actually I, I was disappointed by that it's an interesting one because i had such high expectations and then you know there was some, there was some bits that were so grueling and so so powerful but then there were other bits that he just went you know to, at the end of it I I was left with okay rather than oh my god if that makes sense mm. so yeah, yes, I, yeah. I mean but one book that I always always go go to you know when I feel um when I feel down is to kill a mockingbird I think mm. there's something so powerful about seeing the world through a child's eyes and having kids myself now you know there are times when I see um scout in my little girl <laughs> um mm. just, yeah 
I, I've, I, I suffered from having to read that at school and therefore thought it was rubbish and boring <laughs> um, and recently rediscovered it on audiobook. And uh, Atticus is a wise man and Scout is a wise young girl, isn't she? Absolutely, absolutely. My That's kids the... love to read. My little girl, she's six, and she she just absolutely loves to read. So I'm I'm discovering whole new series. We're going back to Famous Five and Secret Seven and this whole new series, Amelia Fine, things that, you know, you'd never, I had never read. So it's it's a good transition phase for me right now. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Nice. Um, and what about some music that you love that might well be new to me? Hmm. Um, see, one of the things that is the joy of having lived in so many different places is being able to immerse yourself in that culture. And for me, music is so intertwined with uh, with a place and with, with emotions. So, you know... Um, it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because someone asked me the other day, what's your favorite song? I'm like, I don't have a favorite song. Tom Waits, <laughs> Tom Waits is my go-to when I feel oh, yes. something wonderful about his voice and the melancholy and the longing. Um, you don't meet nice girls in coffee shops. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so Tom Waits and then, you know, for me, uh, the go-to is always A.R. Rahman with, you know, Hindi Hindi, Hindi music. Uh, my kids love dancing to his beat. It's just amazing. Uh, so oh, yeah, if you haven't heard much E.R. Rahman, I would ask, you know, <laughs> that's one. Yeah, I definitely don't know that. I say that because I don't know if you even know you're talking about a man or a woman or a group, but <laughs> I look forward to discovering. He's an Oscar. Actually, he's, he won the Oscar a few years ago for his soundtrack to Slumdog uh, Millionaire. Yeah. And that's how the discovered him. But, you know, he's one of our treasures <laughs> in India. Oh, I, I, one of my earlier podcast interviews, uh, I interviewed a musician, a young musician, and she told me how much she loved uh, Billie Eilish. And yes. I said, oh, I've never heard I've never heard of him. So this is how, uh, how uncool I am. <laughs> Shocking. Your kids have, yeah. to, have to give you a lesson. Have to educate me. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the third thing is recipe. So I love I love cooking Indian food. And my mission in life is to cook a good dal. I have a theory that uh -huh. if you, like, I know, I think it's Gordon Ramsay or Jamie Oliver or someone like that. They say that the key to being a good cook is someone who can make an omelette. And I have a theory that if you can make a good dal, yeah. then you are a good Indian cook. Yeah. So I want to make dal taste like it does in the restaurants, but I can never do it. What, do, you, do, do you know what I'm doing wrong? Um, see, do you know, dal is one of those very deceptively simple things. It's not, it's, it's, it's not simple at all. You know, it, it okay. makes you think, oh God, this is so easy to make. But actually a good dal is you have to get the proportions of your spices just right. And you've got to get your tarka. Tarka is what you put when you finish cooking your dal and what goes right on, you know, at the end, that has to be just spot on. Um, there's, a, I don't know if you've heard of Dishum, which is um, a, a restaurant chain. Um, mm, yes. And Dishum do a Kali dal, which is the black dal, which is the closest I've come over here to having a dal taste like home. Um, but I can send you, I'll, I'll email you a lovely dal recipe and you can do okay. it. Okay. I'll put, I'll put it in the show notes. Perfect. <laughs> people. Okay. <laughs> Great. Oh, this is fantastic. Um, I've got a couple more quick questions that are off topic, but one I, I've seen that you started doing the couch to 5k. Yes. Which is a brilliant, brilliant thing. So 
Um, can you give a quick uh, song of praise to, well, I don't know, actually, I don't know if you're enjoying or hating it, but how, how, how's Couch to 5K treating you? I am not a runner at all. I, I mean, I don't run. I'm not good at running. I have no grace when I run. I love swimming. I love cycling. I love walking. I cannot run to save my life. And um, I, this was one of my, you know, challenges to myself over lockdown. I have to do something that um, <laughs> that helps me kind of keep keeps me sane. And Couch to 5K was something that came highly recommended through lots of friends. And um, uh, today was day four and I woke up and I spent about 45 minutes making all kinds of excuses not to go out because I was <laughs> can't be bothered. It's not a very nice day in Edinburgh. And I went, I, I did it, and I love it. I absolutely love it because, you know, it's it just it's gentle. It does you're not running for twenty minutes. It just kind of builds you up, and I'm able to do that, and that makes me feel like I've done something, you know, that I've challenged myself, which is good. But physically, you know, I have a, I feel so good for at least an hour after the run. So yes, I am a con complete convert, and I am—I feel very sorry for my friends who are going to meet me over the next few weeks because I'm going to be talking about not, not much else. <laughs> oh, you, you're going to become one of those exercise bores who just goes on about how wonderful running is. It's awful, mm -hmm. honestly. It's like I've—it is the twilight zone right now. I've got myself a Fitbit and a yoga mat, and I've done bike <laughs> k which is all the things I said to myself I would never do. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, well, I, I hear in the background the patter of your of tiny feet. I suspect I'm that's so young children. No, no, not a problem at all. I'm suspecting that is young children about wanting to burst in on mummy and demand two biscuits. I think, um, I think they're being they're being um, held <laughs> outside and bribed. That's time. absolutely fine. But I think that your uh, encouraging tale of couch to five k is a perfect place to, for us to stop on so daisy thank you so much i really really enjoyed our chat and uh please keep up the the good work getting getting everyone out cycling and making our cities better thank you very much just to say i mean i'm i'm in such complete awe of, of you know your adventures and following what you do so i loved the video that you did the, the kaveri river was really inspirational so i'm going to i'm going to be following that and and when i feel low go back and see it's amazing stuff that you're doing and oh thank you that's the last bit to say that the city building stuff cannot happen with one person all of us have to do this together so there's so many amazing folk doing this and i'm glad if it can be amplified and you know uh, more and more of us come in and be ambassadors for good design thank you brilliant oh thank you very much daisy thank you hope you've enjoyed this episode of Living Adventurously. If you did, please do rate and review the series on your podcast app. It really helps. Please also take a quick screenshot right now and send it to any of your friends who might appreciate listening. There are dozens of episodes for them to dip into. And if you enjoy mulling over the questions on my deck of cards, you can now try them out yourself. I've put them all into a notebook for living adventurously, which you can buy on my website. And whilst you're there, why not sign up for one of my three email newsletters or two other podcast series? Okay, enough of the sales talk. Thank you very, very much indeed for listening to Living Adventurously.
I hope you'll come again soon.